0: now please welcome our Alanon speaker Matthias Gia
1: Thank you my name is Matthias and um, I'm an adult child, child to my mother who is an alcoholic. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Who are you kidding? (laughs) I know you don't like me. I'm from the. (laughs) I'm from the other side. (laughs) I'm the all unknowner. I still remember that night I was a dead man walking in a nice suit I was running and hunting that forest trail the rain was whipping into my face and I couldn't barely see the path because it made the visibility equal to zero But I could still find that path, because I had been running that path during my whole life. I knew every stone, every tree, and there was no problem with that part. And I, I I ran that trail with a very tense pace, very fast pace. I had, I could feel every heartbeat in my temple and I had that taste of blood in my mouth. You know when you are pushing yourself to the limit. I was high on adrenaline and endorphins up to my eyeball. But I also felt very tired this night close to sick, and um, I was turning up on a bridge that took me over the channel, and I turned out on a smaller, on a small trail of gravel or something, and I suddenly felt a very strong feeling of dizziness. and. In the same moment, something warm was streaming over my lip and I realized it was blood from my nose. My body was out of use and, I, and it made uh, everything it could to communic- uh, tell me that. But I lived my life with a pedal to the metal and I pushed and I pushed. And I lost the balance and I was free falling into the gravel. And I still don't today know what hurt most. My scraped body or the internal pain in that moment when my superficial façade w- went down like a tree in a storm what i am trying to tell you here is my what what i what i was addicted to because i didn't drink i didn't smoke and um, I didn't use any drugs. But I was addicted to excitement. You know, I, I was running in the forest when you guys were down at the pub. <laughs> and I loved it. You know, I was running from shame and uh, guilt unworthiness I think some of you maybe could also relate to that and training was a short term quick fix for me to get out of the coal basement I call the coal basement it was when I um, it was my um, emotional life my own emotional life And I needed these kind of quick fixes, training, you know, and I involved myself in crazy relationships, you know, the person left, did plastic surgery, came back, same person, new face, and I slept with the enemy again, you know, it's a long story. So every time I had that kind of quick fix I thought I was staring at the light at the end of the tunnel but that light was a train loaded with um, feedback from all of the bad choices that I made during my life. And I made a lot of them. So This sick blueprint made this sick blueprint and knocked me to the ground. You know, my drug, one of another favorite drug was uh, sex. It's a very good way to escape pain. Yeah. (laughs) You know, sex was fueling my codependency like a NOx gas fueling a NASCAR or something. It was very strong and and when I lay there in the mud, I, uh, I, I realized that I had a moment of clarity and I took a decision that I... I, you know, I, I felt that I I need I need help. So the next day I wrote down five names and I called a person, we can call him Yoda. And I met Yoda for the first time, maybe ten years earlier, you know, that little green guy <laughs> in Star Wars. And um uh, I didn't remember, even if he told me back in the uh, days that he was sober in AA. Uh, but that was not the reason, because I just called him, because I needed someone to talk with. And I could remember that I really liked that guy. I called him and we haven't uh, been spoken for maybe five years, but we spoke for three hours. But. And uh, he is always telling me that I spoke for three hours. He was just listening. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we, um, he invited me over to Oslo, and actually he's uh, living in Gothenburg, but he should, should be in Oslo for a while. So I flew over the, to Oslo, and you know, at the first lunch, he, um, he, he dropped the first uh, plasma shell right into my heart. You are codependent. And I asked, what? I mean, he, he may be sober in AA, but what the hell is this guy smoking? <laughs> codependent. Hmm. But I went back to my hotel room and I, um, I bugged the internet for everything that I could find about codependency. And um, uh, the next day we uh, hooked up and he asked me what I thought about his um, remarkable idea about the codependency and I told him that I, maybe I am a little a little bit codependent and he just um, you, know, you know he, he swung this lightsaber over and over and hit me um, and he told me Matthias, yes, is it possible for a woman to be a little pregnant?
0: <laughs>
1: no. So we made a deal. I uh, I flew back to Stockholm, and uh, he, we um, ha- the deal was that I should uh, attend ten meetings, and. Um, You know, I did one meeting every week, so that took approximately two months or something. So uh, it was a slow start. But I still remember my ninth meeting, uh, and it was some kind of organizing meeting, and uh, the leader was uh, asking who should brew coffee, who should take the key. And I was sitting uh, at the... At my peak of arrogance, and just thought, "Oh, don't look at me because I just had, I have one meeting left, and then I'm out of here." <laughs> but something happened, and um, I continued, and uh, I started to work in that program, uh, this program, and um, uh, I still remember. You know, of course, I had a lot of challenges uh, because things wasn't easier or in the program it could it, it's very hard to and uh, to um, start from the beginning you know I if I if you have been re- running 30 years out in the forest you it just even if I wanted it it will not take a one hour back to the main road you know even if I running like hell it's a hard work and sometimes I also need to Stop and rest. Patient, um, you know. And um, one thing my sponsor told me was that, Hi, hey, you must have your pants on. No sex for a year. Yeah. And okay, <laughs> I still remember it. I asked, what? What is this? But... Uh, so of course I uh, I made my relapse, and uh, I, uh, I I I can really um, uh, think what you guys is uh, thinking about. Uh, uh, now you think that uh this uh, Alanon guy is really crazy. <laughs> is he telling me that I can't have sex for a year or what? But I think. Um, my uh, my addiction was the excitement, and I think it's impossible for me to recover if my mind is hijacked by endorphins. That I and that I that was my that was the thing I always hunted and needed to stop being with my own emotional life. So. Um, I did it. I did one year. That's good. (laughs) Um, Maybe I can get a coin for that, because the clock is still ticking. (laughs) And, um, yeah, but the hardest thing for me where um, what i could see today is that um my self esteem was was gone and um and, um, and that's the um I'm blown away right now. It was that sex thing. (laughs) Maybe I was too honest. (laughs) You know. Yeah, looking forward for the party. (laughs) Yeah you know i'm a recovered humble man <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um i think uh, and the time is um, also taking away hers jay <laughs> will soon uh, drag me off the stage but the this program have been uh, uh, helping me a lot and uh, Today, I'm a living man walking in a nice T-shirt, so thanks. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Matthias. Uh, now please welcome our main speaker for this evening, Margie D. from London, England hi everyone my name is Margie and I'm an alcoholic I really like this Rocky Horror Picture Show part of uh, stuff. You know, where you're really coming in and going, waiting for the for the uh, lighters to come out. Um, I just find it amazing to be here. This is just uh, just 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 terrific. Um, I mean, the guys that have put this together are are, are just phenomenal. It is astounding what you have done uh, as far as putting this together. Really and truly. I'm gonna put this down here. So I don't knock it over. <laughs> They've been working on it for a long time. then in campaign uh, Peter came to uh, London and did a lot of work. i have been talking to Jay. All the people that have put this together. It's really service to the nth degree, um, and you should get some kind of a medal for that. Actually, um, um, like I said, my name is Marjorie. I'm an alcoholic. You can just skip that other part. We already did that. Um, <laughs> And um, obviously, I'm not originally from uh, London, although I've been there for, for many, many, many years. And um, I consider that my, one of my spiritual homes. But um, uh, I am truly, and down to the core, in every part of my DNA, I am an alcoholic. Um, and that is in thinking and physically and every other way that an alcoholic can be defined. Um, uh, my... Um, First sponsor, Dale the Hippie, the knower of all, uh, (laughs) used to tell me to say my sobriety date uh, whenever I shared because people need to know if you're new, you need to have new friends and and connect up with the program. And if you've got a longer-term sobriety, then people need to know also that it is possible to live your life without having to take a drink or drug or or anything else. Um, My sobriety date is November 6, 1979. So... um, yeah, <laughs> I'm impressed, um, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I was like, "Yeah, I can hear it. I can hear your voices in there she 'She's been sober longer than I've been alive,' <laughs> and yes, I have. <laughs> I have been sober most, yeah, which, which is you know just." It's just, that's just freaky to me. Um, just been using the word freaky tells you how old I am. Um, and if you were to ask how old I am, it would you know, counting fingers and toes, it would take almost three of you <laughs> to get my age. So um, I did come into the program quite young um, for that time, back in the Jurassic period of, uh, of AA. Um, I was considered quite young, quite the catch, actually. Um, LAUGHTER yeah, <laughs> mainly. Then it was, you know, uh, it was it was kind of frightening. Uh, AA was a bit frightening. It is kind of the, you know, what you always feared the most. That AA was at least where I was. I got uh, sober in Miami, uh, but I'll get to that in a minute. I was born in Rhode Island. Um, uh, for people who don't know that, you may know the uh, the TV show Family Guy. Um, I'm from there. I'm from Pawtucket, uh, Rhode Island, and Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And that just explain. Go watch a few episodes. It'll explain my history because I am exact. You know, our family was exactly like that. Um, horrifying, actually. I Actually, know some of the people in the cartoon, oh, um, which is again frightening. But I grew up in Rhode Island. Um, in uh, uh, from Irish, Polish, English. Roman Catholic family and there was no way I was getting out from being an alcoholic. There just wasn't, you know. With that kind of a background, you'll automatically you just roll them in. Um, it was uh, it, my, we were Catholic, Catholic, as they used to say to the nth degree. We were Irish and Polish and it was drinking, 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 drinking church, drinking church. If you go to Rhode Island, you can see a Bar, church, bar, church, bar, church store. You know. <laughs> In that order, Um, and so it was just part of that. And I do believe that my my DNA was was inherited from people from a long line of alcoholics. I mean, I had you know some people you know you hear it now and again where I am the only alcoholic in the family. Well, I was not the only alcoholic in the family. Everybody in the family was an alcoholic. Um, uh, You know, they used to they used to like to have fun. They used to like to dance, and they used to like to drink. And, um, and and after you're in an X amount of a time at an event at the weddings, the, the joke was, you know, I went to a, uh, or uh, picnics or whatever, um, the joke was, um, I went to a fight and a Polish picnic broke out. And that's basically, you know, they just, they, uh, you know, fight all the time, drink, 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 then dance some more, and then get pissed off about something else, and you'd fight some more, and, you know, just that's just the way that people were, you know, where I was from, um, and that's what you expected, and I didn't really know any different um, at the time. It came later. So um, I grew up there, and again, very, you know, we, we had the nuns of Navarone. Uh, teaching us, and they were fairly... I mean, I think they're nicer now, but back then, they they took glee in smacking you and, you know, rulers on the hands and other forms of medieval torture and, you know, making sure you knew that even when, you, even when you're born, you have original sin already. You're not even, you haven't even said anything. You don't have any chance to learn how to walk. You're already doomed. So, you know, it was like there was no way of getting out of it alive. Uh, without getting burned in hell, and I think that's why I moved to Arizona to, uh, acclimatize, you know. <laughs> Because it is kind of like living on the sun there. Um, so, so, I mean, you know, I, I had the, you know, childhood. I mean, back back in those days, they didn't watch children like that. They didn't strap them down into cars. You know, we'd just go over a bump and go into zero gravity, you know, uh, kind of floating around in the car. And it was very kind of lackadaisical. And the kid, you know, we left the house at 9 o'clock in the morning, came back at 5 o'clock at night. And, you know, the pedophiles were chasing us and, you know. Uh, but it just was different. It was just different then. And, and so it was a little less... Uh, we were a little less watched, and we just did what we wanted. Um, I, as I went into high school, I was not the, the, the uh, queen of the prom. But then I figured out, you know, there's only one. There was 435 other of us that weren't the queen of the prom either. So I can't really use that as an excuse. Like, okay, oh, I wasn't queen of the prom. It wasn't popular. That's why I drank. It's like, well, what about all these other people? There was only one queen of the prom, and it turned out she was an alcoholic. So there you go. Um, <laughs> Um, and, and uh, you know, I just had a normal kind of a, a high school kind of experience i didn 't do a lot of drinking then, but um, when I started getting into uh, oh god i can 't even say this um, because this is a young people 's conscience do you understand I understand the irony of my being here. <laughs> Because let's face it, if I need three people to add up my age on their toes and fingers, it's not exactly like I'm a young person. Um, but the summer of 1968 and 70, 69 and 70, it was it was kind of required of American teenagers uh, back then, I was a teenager back then, uh, to... You know, get stoned, listen to Jimi Hendrix, uh, Pink Floyd, smoke pot, eat Cheetos, and drink rot-gut wine, um, uh, you know, Boone's Farm, and Ripple, and, and, oh, Valley High, and just this rotten stuff. But it didn't really kick in there. But that was kind of required at that time, you know, flowers in your hair, and peace and love, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, um, and it didn't really kick in then, but I, I got my introduction to it then. I used to like ginger brandy then. Um, uh, I married my uh, my high school sweetheart for six months <laughs> um, and I, I went into it with the wrong idea I was walking down the aisle and going, well I could always divorce him, couldn't I? Um, which I don't think was the right <laughs> thought to bring forward um, but anyways uh, and after that is really when um, after, I was in my twenties, so I was just 19, 20 kind of thing and um, uh, that's when I really started to... It started to kick in, you know. We got into the 70s, 71, and that kind of thing. And, and I had... Um, I wasn't uh, drinking to a point where it was out of control at that point. There is a point, I think, in every alcoholic's life where, you know, you're going along... Some people start off bang, and they're, they're drunk every day. But other people start off as kind of a slow slide. And then at some point you can't really see the edge when you've gone over the edge you just find yourself falling and going over the edge and there's no way you can't, you can't go back up because there's nothing to grab onto and I think everyone has felt that that's an alcoholic that the edge is now gone and there's no place else but down and um, I don't, that happened to me later it didn't happen eventually I, um, I started to go out at that time um, I used to go out to dance to meet what was then euphemistically called boys. Um, uh, Drinking was part of it, and and that's what we would do. We would go out, and and that was the plan. Um, and, And basically, disco was my downfall. When I started going out... Out into the world and drinking and all this stuff at some point during the disco years i 'm not sure exactly when sometime between uh, everybody was kung fu fighting and <laughs> and Saturday night fever, I lost it. you know that edge I just kind of come in and then there she goes, and she 's gone and that happened i don 't know exactly when that happened, but it did. Uh, my brother-in-law who used to my family was uh, uh and um uh catering and, you know, so he had a bar kind of restaurant, and I used to go in there when I first started out, um, and uh, and (laughs) so cute, you know I I love this phrase in England that they use to go aw, bless, and it just covers such a lot of territory um, (laughs) and uh, I used to drink these drinks with mixers, you know they were red, and they'd have umbrellas, and and fruit on little plastic swords and it was so cute, you know and I went out, and and, you know, it it was alcohol and then within a year, this so was stupid. Um, within a year of that, and this is why it came on. Uh, my brother-in-law noticed. He said, "You used to come in here and drink, you know, these girly little, little why bother drinks." And um, and by the end of that, I was drinking 15 wild turkeys straight at night. I got rid of the ice, I got rid of the mixers, I got rid of the accoutrement, you know, and I downed it, and I was drinking uh, the Baraducci brothers um, under, the, uh, under the table. They were from Providence. We weren't quite sure what they did, but we think it was the funereal business, if you get my drift, or waste disposal, one or the other. Um... And I used to drink them under the table, Vinnie and Barry uh, and drive them home after having 18 wild turkeys. So, uh, and, oh, and I switch over to other other forms of, of heavy um, alcohol. So it kicked in. And I didn't drink because I mean I had traumas and I had things and my grandmothers died and you know uh, you know all kinds of things happened in my life as I went. But I didn't drink because I was shy. I didn't drink because I was um, you know upset. I didn't drink because I was insecure. I didn't drink because I was angry. I drank because I was an alcoholic. And I used those excuses. This, for me, this is what an alcoholic does. They use, here's a life circumstances, that's our response to it. Some people go out and they find a therapist. True, <laughs> You know, imagine. Some people go out and they do some, some voluntary work. Some people yell at somebody. Alcoholics, it's like, well, something emotional happened to me. Of course, I drink, you know. And it's not the emotional stuff. that taking. It's our response to it. As an alcoholic, there is no other response. You have to you have to drink because that 's what we do. My alcoholism was alive then, and i didn 't recognize it as that just then. I assumed I was making these decisions myself it 's a good idea to go out and you know smash the car up and come in at four in the morning and don 't know what city you 're in i 'm in control you know um, if My boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, was a um, a Pawtucket, uh, Rhode Island (laughs) cop. And, um, yeah, that didn't go over too well. Um, But I T-boned. In other words, I drove into the side of the South Attleboro, Massachusetts, fire chief's car with his car driving drunk. That didn't go over too well either. And then they gave me a loaner car while my one was being fixed and I ran that one into something else so I used to do you know but I'm still like yeah so I've got everything's under control um okie dokie um, so I went on and on like that and um, boyfriend left of course and that kind of thing I got into all kinds of accidents um, I, I drove drunk every day and that's when I look back at it now and I understand at that point I would just say well I just go out at night and I just have a couple of drinks and sometimes it gets out of hand but I'm young and blah 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 and you know that's what you do of course and, but now I look back on it and, and for me it is the clock the clock at 12 o'clock every day Midnight. I was either drinking, driving drunk, crashed out somewhere with someone I really didn't know who their name was. Um, I wouldn't call myself promiscuous. So I would prefer to use the phrase frisky. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. Doing that, uh, landing home, passing out into an alcoholic coma, getting up in the morning because I had to go to work to finance this whole rigmarole um, driving again to work half in the bag swearing to God on the Bible that I would not drink that day because I suffered from hangovers terribly I wasn't smart enough to take a little drink in, in between time I just suffered the whole day drinking Alka-Seltzers and eating and getting, getting rehydrated and what that and then at about 3.30 see I started to feel a little better and then it started talking to me again. Well, feeling all right? What the hell? You can just go out for wine, you know? Yeah, I can do that. And then I drive to the drinking, do the drinking, and then we're back at 12 o'clock. But I would have told you that the only thing that I'm doing is um, is having a few drinks at night. But my entire life, every action, every moment of the day was dictated, either how I felt cleaning up the mess of, of what I did before, the entire day was was lost in alcoholism in one form or shape or another it doesn't not necessarily the complete drinking but uh, recovering from it or whatever and I can see that now but I didn't see that then and I think that's why we lose a lot of people and a lot of people die or in, in car crashes and that kind of thing I drove drunk every day every day I drove drunk um, which I find amazing because um, when I was 17 my father was killed by a drunk driver in a head-on collision and yet it, during that time, during that time that I was functioning as an alcoholic, I uh, made a decision that somehow this was a good idea to get in a car and put the put the world at uh, at risk and drive drunk and uh, i don 't know how I did that, but that 's what alcohol dictated to me that's and i didn 't know it was the alcoholism I thought it was me making that that decision, and it wasn um, <clears> 't <throat> so Obviously, I got in a lot of trouble. I never went to jail, um, uh, which I should have every single day. Um, I lost a lot of relationships because I was just a gigantic, colossal pain in the ass, um, which I think we all are when you're drunk. You know, if you see a drunk now, you're going, oh, God, you poor thing. But, God, could we be annoying? You know? <sighs> you know? And I and was. You know, let me repeat the same thing 50,000 times in your face while I'm breathing on you. Yeah, yeah that's good. That's attractive. Um... So, um, of course, um, alcoholics not knowing, not, and I really didn't know it was the alcohol. And again, I think that's why we lose a lot of people because they don't really have a cognitive connection that what is going on in your life is directly connected to alcohol. And um, they have the layman's uh, view of an alcoholic: is this lives under a bridge, is oh past this age, is ties their coat with a rope, you know, uh, and and those kinds of things. You know, and they're they're just cliches of what an alcoholic is. And because I don't fit into those little categories. I'm not an alcoholic, so it doesn't have to be the alcoholic. So we don't have to think about that. So it goes on to something else. It must be a relationship. It must be not enough money. It must be this. It must be that. And the alcoholism keeps keeps the real problem hidden, hidden under here. And and uh, people are not. And then we lose them. They die. They get killed. They kill other people. Um, and 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 I find that it's not out of. Uh, Denial per se, I think it is out of ignorance. Ignorance being that they don't know what an alcoholic is and what, it, that their problems are related to that. So I moved to Miami, uh, which was great because, um, that's eventually where I got sober in, um, a coral room in Miami. Now, the piece de resistance <laughs> of my, of my, uh, drinking, because I was there a year and then I, then I got sober, um, uh, and again, you know, you can't, you don't make when you're when you're feeding the subpersonality of of alcoholism, uh, your decision making is terrible, you know. Um, so uh, you know, you pick. You know, what is an alcoholic with you know years of years of drinking and and uh, you know no thinking and living through hangovers? What kind of a decision are they going to make about? Yes, I found the man of my dreams. Um, you know, it just it just just not going to happen. Um, so I went to Miami, and I did. In my mind, you know, people, places, things. The place, Miami. Hey, you know, wh- how can you go wrong? Uh, the person. He was a Learjet pilot, I mean you know you know how what else could you could you ask for so um, and he drank more than I did, and he used to throw me over his shoulder and carry me up the stairs and whatnot so um I went to Miami and I met this person a driving a white corvette that should have been the tell-all sign right there, you know. But I was like, this is the... You know, I knew something was wrong. You know, uh, Rhode Island didn't work out for me. I had to kind of split town. And um, I did have this underlying feeling that something was wrong, other than, you know, I mean, I I could see that alcohol was starting to uh, work its way in. But I also had this underlying feeling that I'm missing something here. There's something that I'm not getting. There's something that I don't understand. There's something that I think I'm supposed to do but I'm not doing it and I don't know how to find that and and it was just kind of a a kind of a little role and a little a little discontent that was kind of coming to my consciousness. So I figured, you know, going to Miami would be great. And so, you know, to uh, you know assuage this um, this discontent, I uh, I hooked up with this this man who was had lots of money. Uh, you know, drove a you know flew a Learjet here, there, and everywhere, um, which was you know interesting to me. Um, drank more than I did. Financed my drinking. You know, I never got into drugs. I mean, they were laying cocaine down in the cracks of the sidewalk back then um that was just like 1977 78 um, the cocaine cowboys were that's where all the cocaine you ever did came from um and i really wasn't interested into it other than it is a um it was a tool for me to drink more that's it do the coke drink more and that was it i never bought it i never did it and of course i had a, you know this person uh, financing that and um and one day he flew off. See, I'm thinking, he's going off. This what I was told. He was going off and flying around Japanese businessmen. Um, and one day he flew off and never came back. And I kind of tracked him down and found out what was going on, what's going on here. And I was drinking straight vodka all the time by this time. And um, I found out that um, his jet had gone down in the Everglades. Uh, he crashed in the Everglades and they were all about to attend his funeral so I went off to the funeral and um, at the funeral this is at the funeral I found out he was married with three children forgot to mention that um, and that actually uh, he wasn't actually flying Japanese businessmen he was actually making business trips to Bogota, Colombia um, <laughs> And oh, and he had uh, he had a business disagreement, and they basically shot him out of the sky. Um, <laughs> and I was politely asked, "You should get out of town," uh, so I did. And I came back and six months, and, and very soon after that, I came into AA because I, I I really started drinking. And although he was a you know not what he purport, I, I still was hurt that that he would die because at that point I did love him. Um, and uh, I was getting over that. So that was, you know, that my drinking then escalated to a point that was ridiculous. I drank all the time. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I couldn't work. I was working at my sister's uh, bar and restaurant. She had a, a one down there. And um, it, was, it was complete chaos. And, and I came into the program, and six months later after this happened, I found out that he actually had faked his own death and was living in Bimini. So... That was the man of my dreams, right there. <laughs> so, gathering this these pieces of information together, I really, you know, I couldn't stop drinking then. I knew that. I knew that death was, was upon me. I could feel it. I could smell it coming near me. I, I had this real in, insight that I was going to die very soon. And it's funny, because... I'm not quite sure that alcoholics are that afraid of death (laughs) Um, because what we do and we continue to do, uh, you know, it's like death is kind of like, well, if you're drinking, that's kind of part of the deal, isn't it? Um, But I was afraid that little sneaking suspicion that there was something that I needed to do other than just run around with these cocaine convoys and stuff was really it, it was banging hard on the inside of my head. And I think. What eventually drives a lot of alcoholics to find some help is that they, they answer that. It's sort of like dying. I didn't want to die with the music in me. I didn't want to die with this thing that I was supposed to be or do inside me still and then just dying this pathetic death, either somebody murdering me or driving into something and that and missing that. It wasn't so much the death that bothered me, but the other did bother me a lot and I could feel it coming up and I do think that that was my higher power going excuse me do something and do it now Um, and uh, it's very funny because I think it's funny I've got these little angel wings on the back but I think angels of of, uh, AA's and, and alcoholics come in all forms mine came into a form of a girl named Joanne who Um, If you've ever seen the uh, series Cheers, there is a waitress in there called Carla. And Joanne was like that. She was a very, very scary person. She was about this high, about the size of a gnome. And... uh, she, she, just, she just was nasty and I was working with her and she was, she was just like you are killing yourself I had gotten into a, a car wreck and broken uh, the vertebrae in my neck and in my back and my face was all my teeth had come through my, um, through my um, lip and uh, I was a mess and, and she just was like she's like that's it you're yeah, coming with me. She was the kind of person, uh, if she gave change, she, she, you know, she would give change for drinks like they do over here, you buy a drink and give her change. And if you put coins on it, she'd look at it and go, do I look like I take the bus? And she would make take it back and give her paper money a fiver and stuff. So you didn't say no to her. She put me in her Cadillac convertible with the top down. She said, get in the car. And I got in the car, and she basically drove me by the coral room and opened the door. I don't think she stopped even. Opened the door, rolled me out like tumbleweed, and that's how I got here. And she drove away. And I, I have saw her maybe twice more in my life. But that's that's who got me there. And I rolled into um, into AA like that, not knowing what the hell to do. Because I think the trauma of the boyfriend dying, and then you know, all this and that, and the the overall consumption that I do, and in that, it was that feeling of. There's something, there's something that I'm missing here. There's something that I was missing here. And I just, I continue to drink because that's in my DNA. My alcoholism wants me to drink, and it will tell me any kind of a story that I need to hear for me to make that decision to drink. And it is, it's like, it's like for me, it's like being cohabitated. By another personality, whose my intention is to live a full life, and my intention is to do good, and my intention is to achieve some certain things, and its intention is the complete opposite. It is, you know, George Campbell's uh, um, uh, hero uh, with a thousand faces. It's it's uh, Darth Vader in Skywalker. It's it's all of that, and it lives within me, and I know that. And there was that part that still wanted to drink, and there was a part that that wanted something else. So I listened to her, because I don't know why. And when I came in, I was the youngest one in the group at the time. Obviously not now. Um, But uh, at the time, I was the youngest person in the group. And I thought to myself, even though I didn't know what to do, I was in grief, I was this, I was drunk, I was falling apart, I was all of that stuff. I I looked around, and God bless these old codgers. But... um, They were a million years old to me, and they were all smoking their cigarettes right down to the end. You know, the thing that you, if somebody says AA oh, to you, it's gonna be full of old people and they're all gonna be, oh, God, you know, they were just like that. You know, they were, they were your, your AA nightmare. And there was me with the, you know, like now, hair and, you know, all this other stuff. And, um, sparkles, you know, I still do this, don't I? Sparkles in the day and all that, high heels in, and they were just like, oh, my God. And I walked in and all the, the, the core room is open all day. If you ever go to Miami, it's open from seven in the morning till midnight. And you could stay there all day, and you could go to meetings all day, and it's, it, was, it was basically my treatment center. And they just walk around all day, sit in the same spot in the same plastic sofa every day, and the same things, reading the same papers. I think they were from like 1895 or something. Reading these papers, cigarettes down, and little Burns going, "Yeah, well, don't drink, go meet.
1: Don't drink, go meet.
0: You know." God, you know, um, <laughs> there was this one guy. I don't know why decided to call me Genevieve. Fine, whatever. Hey, Genevieve, how's that? <laughs> um, and he had orange boat shoes, and I always remember seeing them sliding by because he never picked them off the off the pavement. He just kind of kind of shimmy across the floor, going, <laughs> and his orange. you all right, Genevieve. Uh, don't drink, go to You know. I I don't remember my first year other than that. I learned, you know. (laughs) um, But you know what? They're absolutely right. Even now, after all this time, don't drink and go to a meeting is a very profound statement. Um, If you don't drink, obviously you don't get drunk. Uh, If you go to a meeting you will hear what you need to hear to stay sober that day you'll hear what you need to do to hear for a long-term sobriety you'll hear another person's story that needs that someone that needs to help you'll get an opportunity to do that you'll hear everything that you'll need to to hear to live a sober life and um, and they were right because that's That's the way I live my life now is that I don't drink and I go to a meeting. And at the meeting is everything I need to know, do, say, hear, read to uh, keep myself sober. So um, I was in this group with these old codgers, which they had an old codger table that if you were uh, 20 years sober, you could go sit at. And then when I got 20 years sober, because they were laying bets across these tables going, she's never going to stay sober. Look at her. Jesus Christ. You know, and she's never going to stay sober. And they, they, when I got 20 years sober, I'm like, okay, where's my seat? We And we moved it to 25. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh
1: shit.
0: <laughs> I sat there last time I went. Um, and so they got me sober, and I got a sponsor. Dale the Hippie had, had come in a few years, uh, and she was the knower of all things and not interested in any of my complaining whatsoever, which was great. It's like, but I'm having a bit. I don't care about your day. You know, like, what are you doing? You know, And which was perfect for me because it gave me instructions. And um, when I came in, of course, I, I t- said about the Catholic thing, which uh, works for a lot of people, but it, d- it just didn't, you know, coincide with my vibe, as it were. Um, and I saw the steps on the walls, and I was kind of agnostic because, you know, God was kind of beaten out of me then. Um, and I and I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to reconcile this? Because I I was listening with the with my alcoholic um, filter, you know. It's like um, we admit we were powerless over alcohol, and our lives have become unmanageable. This is what I heard: you're a terrible, rotten drunk, and you have to tell everybody about it. That's what I heard. I was like. Oh. But admit, admit to me is like with your arm up around the back of your neck. You know, admit it, you know. And it's like, well, um, you know, it ca- came to believe that a power greater than myself can do it. You know, to me, that's God will fry you if you drink again. You know, this is what I was hearing. This is the way I was listening to what they were saying to me. And you know, and that's, uh, and, and that's all right because I think you have to go through that that reinterpretation of how things are because you come in with a set of with a template of how to listen and how you interpret the world and how you. Move in the world, and from an alcoholic point of view, this is not a pretty picture or or, or constructive in any way. So, so it is that kind of picking it off and, and reinterpreting and bringing it down. You know, I, I went through the mechanics of staying sober, and I think that's all you need to do in the first uh, while. Stay sober. Don't, do, don't drink. to meeting. to meeting. Just keep. Just don't drink and go to a meeting. Don't drink and go to meeting. And then after a while, it's like it's like you can see people. Um, there were these this motorcycle group that used to come to the, the group leather and lace, and there was about 50 of them that used to come in on a uh, on a Sunday night to this meeting, and they were big book bashers, like in the head uh, kind of big book bashers, and they all had so there's a motorcycle club in um, in the states, um, and they'd all ride in, and um, and whenever they brought a new recruit, you could always tell because he'd keep his mirrored sunglasses on in the meeting and never smile. Never ever smile, and then after a while, you know, you start to see teeth, and it's like, Okay, you must have gotten your three months chip, you know. Uh, and you take off the sunglasses, and it was just like a miracle to see these guys because they were so hard nosed, and they're all like, I'm really grateful to my sponsor, who <laughs> you know. They, oh, god. Um, so I came in, what I was listening to, and, and gradually over time that I uh, it changed for me was. The steps, you know, they talk about the, 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 it doesn't say to do anything. It doesn't say to do anything. The steps do not tell you to do anything. I heard it that way. It's a retrospective. It's like an interview. It's like, so what would you do? Well, we admitted we are powerless over alcohol and our lives are becoming manageable. Really? Then what? Well, then we came to believe that a power grain in ourselves could restore us seriously. No kidding. Well, then what? Well, then you we make a you make a decision to turn your life and your will over to a... a and I was like, oh, they're just saying what they did. They're not telling you to do anything because as an alcoholic, I'll tell you what, I got armor up here, and you want to mess with me? Okay, I know you know, I know karate. Don't don't come near me. I don't want you near me. And and so gradually, and I think that approach is brilliant. There is a certain amount of genius in in AA and um, and. I'm not sure it is divinely inspired, I believe, just because of that. I didn't notice that for a long time, that it was all written in the past tense. It's just what someone did. Take it or leave it. Do them if you don't. If you want to get better, you can do them. You can just leave them there if you want. It does say in the book, you can drink if you want. You want to go out and drink? Drink. Go ahead. Come back and tell us how it was. You know, it's not going. It's like it's, it says it's worth the case of the jitters. You know, from that thing. So you can take it as much as you can. That's why you to still like to listen to these people because they, they, all they just they just told me this is what I did, this is what I did. You know, and and um, it was a different approach completely. And for me, as being an alcoholic personality, who's you know defences up, that was exactly what I needed. Um, and that's the way. it it, it filtered through to me after a while and it wasn't it didn't happen immediately and there's no big rush you can do this for the rest of your life you know if you don't want to drink you don't drink and if you come to a meeting and then it all kind of washes over you all the information starts to infiltrate uh, your DNA and I gradually came to I, I was when I first came in I was hoping i was hoping that something could change i don't know why i stay why would you stay with a bunch of old guys in orange boat shoes calling you genevieve smoking cigarettes down in the end you know why would you do that it's like geez um i don't know why i stepped, but there was there was something there was a piece that i said you know if i do this there was there was some hope because before that you know the way that my life was going the direction that it was going in and i was quite young you know to to begin, and um um it was hard. It was hard. But I stayed for, for whatever reason. I don't know what. And I do believe that that is that divine inspiration. Um, and after a while in the program, that's when I started to actually have faith in it because I could see it working. At that point, there were a lot of young people starting to come in. Just about, um, I came in in 1979. So 1980, uh, 1981, a lot of young people started coming into the program. And uh, we did a lot of work with um, Pa, the Florida International um, uh, uh, Conference of Young People in AA, and um, uh, in, in 1986, we had uh, the Ikepa um, uh, Convention in Miami, which was which was wonderful, and, um, uh, you know, Young People in AA goes back to 1958, you know. I would say before I was born, but I'd be lying. Um, <clears throat> so, um, and I do believe it was divinely inspired, because A, the big book was written when these guys were Five years sober. If you start reading, uh, you know, Pass It On in the Language of the Heart and the Good Old Timers and all that stuff, these guys were crazy as bedbugs, you know, um, trying to form this thing. And somehow, this thing has emerged. I, I think it's been excavated. I think it was divinely inspired and it was handed to these guys. And they looked at it and they were trying different things and doing different ways. I mean, the Washingtonians and the, um, the Oxford group kind of had a, a deal on it and they did take from that. But I, I think it was there all the time for humanity to discover. And, and Bill and Bob just, they were, they were brushing away the pieces that weren't necessary, but it was a whole thing. It came to the world in one piece, and they discovered it. It was it was like digging up ruins, and they found it, and it's kind of the secret of life, to tell you the truth, um, and, and gradually. And th- when the traditions came in and, and, and that kind of thing, it preserves. It preserves that, and it, we, I think AA has been very uh, vigilant in, in keeping that in place because had that not happened, I mean, these guys were flying by the seat of their pants. They didn't know. They were, they were forming this thing. What You know, um, they didn't have a template. They were creating a template or discovering the template to, for all of us to be sober from. All of us got to be uh, part of that. And how many, it's got to be billions of people have been lost to alcoholism, either through uh, codependency, through um, uh, uh, killing themselves, killing other people, disease and all of that stuff has all been lost. All these billions of people who had an opportunity, who could have been um, you know, resurrected from being an alcoholic, living an awful, pathetic life of an active alcoholic. All of those people, all of these families, everyone has been saved from that. And I do believe it is a, a global kind of thing, and I don't think that it was random. I do believe it was divinely inspired, and it was given to these these people um, to be able to bring it forward to all of us, to all our families, to everyone else and every other uh, thing. And, and, and I take that to heart. Um, after I got sober for a while, I, um, I had faith that it worked, obviously, because it was working in my life. I got married uh, in, in AA, uh, married a man who was born on December 25th, <laughs> slight misogynistic thing going on there um, and uh, I got divorced 14 years later because he went out and had a slip and basically destroyed our family so I've seen it up close and personal from both sides um, my children are, are fabulous by the way and so I took some time off <laughs> from relationships and then I got married again um, to a man who was born on December 25th um, but was 20 years younger when were you born <laughs> But that didn't quite work out. We were married a couple of years, but unfortunately I had to get a like, fluffy go. Um, <laughs> but I've done everything that I've ever wanted to do in AA. I've done every kind you know, I've been, I, I'm still a parent. All my children are grown in, in that kind of thing. I've done every, every thing that I ever wanted, wanted to do as far as my life goals are concerned. And I'll tell you what, now I trust the program. I have not found anything in the big book that's not true. So far, W.C. Fields was looking through his Bible when he was on his deathbed going, and his friends said, what are you doing? You're, you're, you know, you're an atheist. What are you looking through that for? And he says, I'm looking for loopholes. And, uh, and I think, you know, I still read the big book because I am kind of looking for loopholes. Something that's not true so far... And again, divinely inspired. These guys were five years sober. I wouldn't have written a recipe when I was five years sober about, you know, how to save yourself in the world, uh, which is basically what A is doing. And and that came through. And I do have absolute trust. In it now. I see people who have been sober for that are in terrible straits who get sober and, and leave absolutely and phenomenally productive lives, helping other people. I think the part of service is so important in AA. If you just sit there, it's sort of like a wheel. It has to go forward. And if you just sit and don't do service or give back to another people. You just kind of rock it in one place. And to keep it moving, that, that part of bringing in other people and, and putting yourself out to another pe- person altruistically is, is so important what keeps us here. Um, the structure of the, the steps holds the person together. The structure of the traditions holds us together. Um, we are a community without borders, we don't uh, judge by what you make or what you do or uh, who you are or where you came from. You're measured by, are you sober today? Can you help another alcoholic? We never say, ever, I'm never going to drink again. In fact, like I said in the book, it says go drink again. Um, uh, you never say I'm not going to drink again, but which I take to heart, and this is kind of the heart and soul of my um, sobriety, is that we do take a pledge. It's not to not drink. It is that when anyone anywhere reaches out for help I want the hand of AA always to be there and for that I am responsible thank you